beginning the official proceedings, and we hear the polite opening of Paul. Let's look at verses 1 to 3. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. Paul opens politely. He considers himself fortunate or blessed to be defending himself before King Agrippa. Now, I don't know about you, but... I don't usually associate the language of blessing with having to stand in chains before all the high and mighty government and military officials in the area and give an account of my life. The word translated fortunate or blessed is the same word Jesus used in the Beatitudes, and it means worthy of congratulations. Here, Paul recognizes against all appearances that he is in the right place at the right time by God's design. He's right where God wants him, doing what God wants him to do. Blessed indeed. What we're about to see in Paul's defense is not so much a defense of himself as it is a proclamation of the gospel of Jesus and an explanation of the hope of his gospel. As it turns out, Paul's real goal here was not to get himself off the hook or show his innocence, but rather he was seeking to convert King Agrippa. We see here, we see Paul here as the model evangelist, preaching the gospel to the Jewish Agrippa while also being heard by a whole bunch of Gentiles. Paul's speech basically says two things. The transformed life of Paul proves the reality of the resurrection of Jesus. And the resurrection of Jesus proves him to be the Messiah. In verses 4 to 8, he begins by reminding everyone of his life as a Jew, but he can't help getting ahead of himself and jumping to the gospel. Look at what he says. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by Jews, O King. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? As everybody knows, Paul was a faithful Pharisee all his life. And he's pointing out the terrible irony that he's standing on trial for his faithfulness as a Pharisee. The phrase on trial is a little misleading. Literally, we could translate the word as being judged or being examined. This is merely a fact-finding hearing, not a technical legal trial. In fact, legally, because he's already appealed to the emperor, Paul could have refused to show up at this hearing. But he's not going to pass up this opportunity to proclaim his gospel to the high and mighty among both Jews and Gentiles. Notice the reason he says he is being judged in verses 6 and 7. Because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain. Just as he yelled out in an earlier hearing back in Acts 23, where he caused chaos between the Sadducees and the Pharisees, so here, it's all about the hope of the resurrection of the dead. The hope of all Jews the hope of King Agrippa, the Jew. 
Here he says that this hope was promised by God to our fathers, that is, to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We're going to see that he makes it clear that this hope is specifically the hope of resurrection. But isn't that surprising? If we think about the promises to Abraham, for example, we don't see anything explicitly mentioned about resurrection. If you recall Genesis 12, 1-3, where God first appeared to Abram and made outstanding promises to him and commanded him to leave his home and commanded him to be a blessing, you won't see resurrection mentioned. Rather, you'll see promises of land, descendants, and universal blessing for the whole world through Abram and his family. Many Jews of Paul's day, like many Jews of today, probably thought solely in terms of land when they thought of the hope of Israel. That is, a land not ruled by foreigners, an independent nation. But Paul seems to think bigger and better. He seems to recognize that resurrection actually encompasses all that Israel hoped for and based on all of God's promises in the Old Testament. In fact, Paul is convinced that the gospel is the fulfillment of all of God's promises to Israel. More particularly, as the first to rise from the dead, Jesus' resurrection began the process of full restoration and and regeneration of Israel. If that's true then rejecting the gospel is rejecting God's promises to Israel. Paul refers to our 12 tribes, a single Greek word which it seems Paul made up, perhaps to emphasize the unity of Israel as they were to be restored. Thus, he may be using this unique word, a 12-tribe unit, to refer to the faithful remnant of Israel throughout history. And in Paul's day... That would be those who trust Jesus, believing the promises God made to Abram and recognizing their fulfillment in Jesus, the Messiah. Then Paul expresses his outrage that Jews would accuse him for this. And in verse 8, he laments that the Jews cannot see God the way he does. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? He then continues his description of his life as a Jew detailing how he persecuted Christians with raging fury. Follow with me as I read verses 9 to 11. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. This is the third time in the book of Acts that we read about Paul's persecution of Christians. And this description, as Paul speaks of his raging fury, his intense madness against Christians, is the most extensive and the darkest. We recall his involvement in the stoning of Stephen in Acts 7 and 8. And here Paul indicates that there were others who faced a similar end. Notice also that he points out the chief priests as the ones authorizing him to arrest and imprison Christians. We might wonder if Paul is here casting a shadow over, of suspicion over his accusers, the Jews, uh, particularly in the ears of Festus as he listens. 
Except in very rare cases, the Jews did not have authority on their own to carry out the death penalty. And in those rare cases, they had to work in tandem with the Roman authorities in the area. On the other hand, the military personnel in the crowd might have applauded Paul for his violence in this case. If so, Paul is about to show how very wrong his violence was. Notice one more detail about these verses before we move on. Notice that Paul refers to the Christians as saints in verse 10. Saints refers to God's holy people and the people he's set apart for his purposes. The people who belong to him as his holy people, his special possession. Even as he tells of the days when he was their enemy, Paul can't help but speak of them as they truly are, God's holy people. Paul moves on in verses 12 to 18 to describe his transformative encounter with the resurrected Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus. He had just mentioned how he persecuted Christians even to foreign cities, that is, cities outside of Judea. Then in verse 12, he says, In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. He makes it clear that he wasn't some vigilante out for his own form of justice. He was acting on orders with the authorization of the chief priests themselves. And here's the twist. Brought on by a blinding light. Look at verses 13 and 14. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. As with Paul's persecution, so this appearance of the resurrected Lord Jesus is described in more extensive detail than we've seen in earlier accounts. Back in Acts 9, Luke had described a light from heaven. In Acts 22, Paul spoke of it as a great light from heaven. Now here, it is brighter than the sun. He also tells us here that this happened at noon, where the sun, when the sun is highest and brightest. Can you imagine? I've had the experience of turning on a flashlight or my car headlights outside in the middle of the day. It doesn't really illuminate much of anything. When the sun is out with no clouds in the sky, there aren't really any lights that we can turn on that are going to make things any brighter outside. But Paul says that this light outshone the sun. At this, Saul and all who were with him fell to the ground. And Saul heard a voice addressing him in the Hebrew dialect, which probably actually refers to what we call Aramaic. The voice calls to him using his name twice. Saul, Saul. In the ancient world, typically, when someone addresses someone directly by their name twice like this, the person speaking wanted to communicate a deep affection for that person, a deep concern for the other person. Remember how God addressed Moses at the burning bush. Moses, Moses. Likewise, Saul hears this as an endearing, gentle address. When you know that the tone is likely gentle and endearing, you really can feel the weight of the question that the voice asks Saul. Why are you persecuting me? Love for one's enemy can hardly be expressed more tenderly. The statement following this question reflects an interesting Greek proverb from the agricultural world. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. 
Kicking against the goads refers to what happens when a farmer pokes at his ox to get him moving along, but the ox kicks back, attempting to resist. Jesus assesses Saul's opposition as pointless, futile. Just like an ox who resists his owner's goading, so Saul can never succeed against the risen Lord of the universe. Resistance is futile. If Saul keeps on resisting and opposing Jesus, he's only going to hurt himself. Paul continues describing his experience in verses 15 to 18. The Lord lays out his impossible mission. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Remember, King Agrippa, his sister Bernice, Governor Festus, and a whole bunch of Roman soldiers are listening to Paul tell this story. They had already heard that Paul asserts that Jesus, who died, is actually alive. But you've got to know that they wouldn't have been expecting anything like this. From their vantage point, this is the stuff of myths and legends. A light brighter than the noonday sun. A personal address in the Jewish language. Paul had just told the crowd that he had been persecuting the saints. Then this heavenly voice asks about why Saul was persecuting him. And this is when Paul tells of how Jesus introduced himself, the one whom you are persecuting. Let's notice how this interaction unfolds between the resurrected Lord Jesus and Saul. First, Saul asks, who are you, Lord? Now remember, the word Lord can be simply a general title of respect. It's much more flexible in Greek than Lord in English. So initially, Saul doesn't know who he's talking to. And he doesn't know that he's speaking to one who is divine. He's probably just being respectful toward one who obviously has more power than he does. Second, the Lord identifies himself as Jesus, the one whom you are persecuting. Here, Jesus identifies himself so closely with his people, the saints, The people Paul describes in his letters as the body of Christ. That to hurt them is to hurt him. I wonder if Jesus paused at that moment to let that point sink in for Saul. In that moment, however long it lasted, Saul is already coming to grips with a number of things. This is Jesus, whom the Christians said rose from the dead as the fulfillment of God's promises to Israel. This is Jesus, who, like Yahweh in the Old Testament intimately identifies with his people. This is Jesus, whose people I've been persecuting. Wouldn't Saul expect the hammer to drop now? But then he might think, I've seen the bright light. The lightning strike must surely come next. But wait, he addressed me so tenderly. Saul, Saul. He had said my name like he knew me and like he loved me. Perhaps he will have mercy on me after all. And at this point, Saul's got to know what's going to happen next. What, 
why is he here addressing me now? He's going to get mercy and more, as it turns out. The resurrected, reigning Lord of the universe has an impossible mission for Saul. Several features of these verses remind us, or should remind us, of Old Testament passages where Yahweh, the God of Israel, commissioned certain prophets. Jesus tells Saul in verse 16, But rise and stand upon your feet. This is what Yahweh said to Ezekiel in Ezekiel 2.1. Then Jesus says that he has appeared to Saul to appoint you as a servant and a witness. A servant, like the servant of Yahweh in Isaiah, and a witness like the twelve apostles. In verse 17, he promises to rescue Saul from your people and from the Gentiles, just like Yahweh promised to rescue Jeremiah, the prophet, from the nations to whom Yahweh was sending him in Jeremiah 1. And the commission language, I am sending you, also reminds us of Jeremiah 1. Verse 18 provides the details of Saul's impossible mission, the first part of which is to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, which is part of the mission Yahweh had for the servant of Yahweh in Isaiah 42, 6 and 7. So Saul's commission from the Lord Jesus is set in terms that should remind us of Yahweh's commissions of Ezekiel, Jeremiah, and the servant of Yahweh in Isaiah. Clearly, we are to see that Saul's role is to be that of a prophet, among other things. Before we look at the details of this impossible mission more closely, we need to step back and address a very important question. Namely, to whom is the Lord Jesus sending Saul? We usually think of Paul as the apostle to the Gentiles, and that is true. But these verses show that Jesus has actually sent him to both Jew and Gentile. Let me explain. Look again at verse 17. Delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. In Greek, the word whom is not connected specifically to the word Gentiles. Rather, it connects to both your people and the Gentiles. I think we tend to assume that the whom only refers to the Gentiles. But if we remember back to the original account of Saul's conversion in Acts 9, we read of the Lord telling Ananias this in Acts 9.15, Go, for he, Saul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Saul is being given a universal mission here to all people, Jew and Gentile alike. His ministry will uniquely focus on the Gentiles, but he never abandons his mission to the Jews. So, now that we see clearly to whom Jesus is sending Saul, what does he send him to do? What is his impossible mission to Jew and Gentile alike? Verse 18 says that he is to open their eyes. Jesus is saying, Saul, I want you to go open the eyes of blind Jews and blind Gentiles. I already mentioned how this is the task of the servant of Yahweh in Isaiah 42, 6 and 7. Look at these verses for a moment on the screen. I am Yahweh. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. Back in verse 1 of Isaiah 42, we we read that Yahweh is addressing his servant. 
Now, we normally think of Jesus as the servant of Yahweh that Isaiah speaks of so regularly, and that is true. But it seems that Jesus passes on some aspects of the mission of the servant of Yahweh on to his apostles and perhaps even to all of his people. More on that in just a bit. Notice in these verses in Isaiah 42 that there is a mention of the people, which is surely a reference to the people of Israel, and there is a mention of the nations, which is surely a reference to the Gentiles. Jesus, as the servant of Yahweh, was sent both to Israel and to the Gentiles. And so now Jesus sends Saul to both Israel and the Gentiles. Both Israel and the Gentiles are portrayed as blind here, needing their eyes opened. What is it they need to see? They need to see Jesus, crucified, risen, enthroned on high as the Messiah and Lord who fulfills all of God's promises. What will the results be when this happens? The rest of verse 18 says, so that they, Jews and Gentiles, may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. The Apostle Paul will later write to the Christians in Colossae with similar words, Colossians 1, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And a few years before that, he had written to the Corinthians, describing the plight of unbelievers like this. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Jew and Gentile alike, that is the situation of every person on the face of the planet who doesn't know the resurrected Lord Jesus personally, blind, living in darkness, under the power of Satan. That's how we are all born into this world. Jesus sent Saul to do something about that. Saul, who was blind. Saul, who lived in the darkness of his own form of Pharisaic Judaism. Saul, who believed he was serving God, but was actually under the power of Satan. The resurrected Lord Jesus transforms that Saul, opens his blind eyes, transfers him out of Satan's kingdom and into his own kingdom. That's what happens to everyone who trusts Jesus. That's what happened to every one of us who have already begun to trust Jesus. Our eyes have been opened. We are no longer living in darkness. We're no longer subject to Satan. And Jesus says that those who have their eyes opened also receive forgiveness of sins. What sins? All sins. All the different kinds of rebellion against God and all the different kinds of failures to measure up to God's standards. He has forgiven all. All of that sinfulness and more, God has forgiven for those who trust Jesus. Lastly, Jesus says, people who have their eyes opened receive a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. The word translated place is translated inheritance in the New American Standard Bible, and that is a better rendering of the word. This is the word used to identify the allotments of land to each tribe of Israel in the Greek Old Testament. 
The inheritance of God's people no longer has to do with only land, but rather it is an inheritance among those who are sanctified. He speaks of sanctification as a condition granted by God, which is the most common way of speaking of sanctification in the New Testament, rather than a process of becoming more holy. We often think of sanctification in terms of becoming progressively more holy, and that is one way the New Testament uses the language sometimes. But we need to remember that in the most fundamental sense, Christians are already definitively and permanently, positionally sanctified. Notice also that Jesus says that this sanctification is received and experienced by faith in Him. Paul has already used this kind of language once before in Acts 20.32. In his farewell to the Ephesian elders, he had said there, And now I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. When we put these two verses together, we see that God sanctifies people, setting them apart from the world of unbelievers and binding them together with other believers in an exclusive relationship with God using the word of His grace, which is a reference to the gospel message. And God sanctifies people by faith in Jesus. These are not two different means. Rather, God uses people to communicate the gospel message to other people. And those who hear the gospel accept the message by believing that it is true and trusting Jesus, the focus and sender of the message. Christians You are all sanctified by the word of God's grace, by the gospel, and through your response of faith to that message. We are saints because we are sanctified. That is who we are. Back in Acts 26, Paul continues his story, narrating for Agrippa how he went on to preach the gospel himself in obedience to Jesus' commission. Look at verses 19 to 23. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, He would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Paul sets the stage for addressing his initial arrest He wants Agrippa and all his hearers to recognize that he was arrested for obeying the heavenly vision. Referring to Jesus' appearance as a heavenly vision, Paul is indicating that the mission Jesus spelled out for him was from heaven, that is, from God. So Paul claims to be doing God's will, and that's why the Jews arrested him. 
the geographical series in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and also to the Gentiles, should remind us of Acts 1.8, where Jesus commissioned the 11 apostles saying, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. For Luke's readers, that probably indicates that Paul's commission is the same as the commission to the original apostles. Paul tells Agrippa that he went all over the place, telling everyone everywhere to repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. This is not the gospel. That is not the gospel. Paul fronts what response to the gospel he asked for of the people. And I suspect that he starts with that response because it flies in the face of his accusers who said he had been stirring up sedition, which would have meant that he was calling for people to rebel, not repent. In verse 22, Paul makes two amazing summary claims. Paul claims that even to this day, he has had the help that comes from God. In light of all that Paul has suffered up to this point, we might wonder how he can say that he has always had help from God. Even now, as he stands in chains, we might ask why God hasn't helped Paul by setting him free, by giving him justice. But the truth of the matter is that, as one writer puts it, this very hearing was within the providence of God. And it was an intended part of Paul's fulfilling of his mission to bear witness even to kings and other dignitaries, both Jew and Gentile. Paul also claims that he has been saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. He hasn't added anything new to the message. His actions and his preaching have been in accord with the Scriptures. His proclamation is exactly what Scripture prophesied. He practiced the principle he preached in 1 Corinthians 4, 6, where he instructs Christians not to go beyond what is written. Verse 23, then, is a summary of the gospel he preached, the gospel announced by the Old Testament scriptures, by Moses and the prophets, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Paul is arguing that the Old Testament pointed to these key elements of the gospel message. Jesus told the eleven apostles the same thing after the resurrection. Look at Luke 24, 44 and following. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Skipping down to verse 46. Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Earlier, Jesus had given Two disciples on the road to Emmaus, an epic Bible study from the Old Testament. Luke summarizes it like this. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. When we read the Old Testament, if we're not seeing how God designed the stories and the characters, the laws and the rituals, the songs and the poetry to point to Jesus, we're not yet reading the Bible the way Jesus taught us to, nor as God designed it to be read. And that's okay. Keep reading. 
Paul asserts the same basic three points here that Jesus did. First, the Messiah must suffer. Second, the Messiah would be the first to rise from the dead. And third, the Messiah would proclaim light to both Jew and Gentile. All of that is in the Old Testament, Paul says. How or where did Paul see those specific points in the Old Testament? And why didn't other Jews see this? Well, we have to recognize that the identity of Christ, the Messiah, is unclear, hidden in the Old Testament. Paul discovered something that Jewish readers of his day and to this day do not and cannot perceive, recognize, see. They are blind. Their eyes need to be opened. Paul discovered that the servant of Yahweh, spoken of in Isaiah, was referring to the Messiah first and foremost. Most Jews throughout history have not recognized this point. And Paul only discovered it because the resurrected Lord revealed it to him. But when you recognize that the servant of Yahweh refers to the Messiah, then you can see clearly that the Messiah was to suffer, and you can see reasonably enough that the Messiah was to rise from the dead. Isaiah 53, 8-10 is the best snippet to see both that the servant would die and rise from the dead. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. So it's pretty clear that the servant dies in verses 8 and 9. Verse 10 then hints that that he would rise from the dead. Yet it was the will of Yahweh to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of Yahweh shall prosper in his hand. That the servant will see his offspring after death and that he shall prolong his days after death, hence at resurrection. Thus, when you recognize that the servant of Yahweh in Isaiah refers to the Messiah, you can also see how the Old Testament points to Paul's third assertion that the Messiah would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. We already saw how Isaiah referred to Yahweh giving the servant as a light for the nations in Isaiah 42.6. But we should also look at Isaiah 49.6. Yahweh says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. This verse is important on a number of levels. First, notice that it is the servant of Yahweh who will raise up the tribes of Jacob and bring back the preserved of Israel. That reminds us of Paul's earlier mention of God's promise to which our twelve tribes hope to attain in verses 6 and 7 of our passage. So the resurrection and restoration of Israel is part of the servant's mission from Yahweh. But secondly, Yahweh sends his servant as a light for the nations, a light for the Gentiles. So Yahweh was sending his servant to accomplish the salvation of Jews and Gentiles. Third, Paul quoted this verse back in Acts 13.47, saying that it referred to his and Barnabas' preaching to the Gentiles. 
This fits with our passage in Acts 26, as Paul earlier connected the servant's mission with himself. But now he indicates that it is primarily Jesus' mission. So the impossible mission of Paul is actually the mission of Jesus. And for Jesus, it isn't impossible. Jesus is the one proclaiming light, proclaiming himself if the servant is the light of the world through the preaching of Paul the Apostle and the others. Well, back in Acts 26, it's at this point that Paul's speech is interrupted. As I reflected on this, I'm not sure we have any recorded speeches or sermons of Paul's that are actually complete. He seems always to get interrupted and cut off violently in many cases. Here, it's Festus, the Roman governor, who loudly stops Paul because he perceives Paul to be insane. Look at verse 24. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. Notice that the Roman governor perceives that Paul is indeed well-educated. And his speech to this point is a good model of ancient Greek rhetoric. But he thinks Paul's studies have driven him over the edge. He's gone crazy because of too much study. If you remember, Paul, people thought Jesus was crazy too. In light of that, I'm starting to wonder if it's revealing of just how unlike Paul and Jesus we are as it's pretty rare for people in our world to think that we're crazy because we study the Bible too much or talk the way that we talk too much. People might think we're gullible. People might think we're stupid, in fact. But they don't typically accuse us of being insane out of our minds because of what we believe or how we live. Paul replies to this directly in verses 25 and 26. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. But I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. While Festus, the Roman governor, may hear Paul's gospel as insanity, and the gospel is foolishness to the Gentiles, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 1, Agrippa the Jew should be able to make sense out of all of this. Paul is speaking boldly, courageously proclaiming true and rational words. The gospel is not sentimentality or make-believe. Moreover, Agrippa should know about the events Paul refers to in his gospel because this has not been done in a corner. This proverbial phrase has a fascinating history. Things done in a corner often referred to philosophers who separated themselves from public life, attempting to gain a following that abandoned public life. It was used as a put-down for secret societies. Christianity, the church, is not a secret society. Nor is Christianity based on some make-believe stories from someone's imagination. The events described in the gospel were public events. They are historically verifiable. Our faith is based on eyewitness testimony of public events. This sets our faith apart from Mormonism, for example, which is based on private visions Joseph Smith was supposed to have received. Likewise, this sets the Christian faith apart from Islam, whose scriptures, the Quran, are allegedly the record of private visions given to Muhammad. 
Paul turns again to address Agrippa directly and has a little interchange with him in verses 27 to 29, revealing his real objective. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, In a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Paul does indeed speak to Agrippa boldly here. He puts the ruler on the spot, asking him if he believes the prophets. He's putting him on the horns of a dilemma. If Agrippa responds that he doesn't believe the prophets, then he'd be renouncing his Jewish faith. If he responds that he does believe the prophets, then Paul will press him to believe that they point to Jesus as the fulfillment of all that they were prophesying. Paul answers for him, (laughs) but Agrippa cuts him off and challenges him seeing where Paul was headed with this line of argument. Agrippa's interruption of Paul is famous because of its rendering in the King James Version, which is showed up in a classic hymn, Almost Thou Persuadest Me to Be a Christian. But most other English translations recognize that Agrippa is asking a rhetorical question. The key phrase could be literally translated, in a little. And it's unclear whether Agrippa means in a little time or with a little effort. It certainly doesn't mean almost. It seems most likely that Agrippa is basically saying, Paul, do you really think it's going to be so easy to persuade me to become a Christian? Paul's response then indicates that whether it's easy or hard, whether it takes a short time or a long time, his genuine desire is that Agrippa and everyone else listening to him would become like him. And don't miss the irony here. Paul is addressing the high and mighty, the rich and famous the elites, and he's standing there in chains, a prisoner who says, I wish all of you could be like me. He then probably held up his chains and with a sly grin added, well, except for these chains. Paul realizes that his situation is better than all of those high and mighty, wealthy, socially powerful aristocrats, even with the chains. In spite of his chains, he knows that he is way better off than any of them. Do we realize this about ourselves as Christians? Regardless of how much money you have or don't have, regardless of how big or small your house is, regardless of how large or small your family is, regardless of what part of town you live in, regardless of whether you are healthy or not, regardless of what job you have, you are to be congratulated because you are in the best place you can possibly be in Christ. Paul is still being obedient to the heavenly vision he received on the road to Damascus. He is preaching the gospel and seeking the conversion of Jews and Gentiles. The passage concludes with Agrippa's assessment in verses 30 to 32. Then the king arose and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Because this is not a formal trial, Agrippa can make this statement concerning Paul's innocence. All the injustice committed against Paul was due to the moral cowardice of men in leadership, both Jewish and Roman. Agrippa only has the courage to say this in private consultation, behind closed doors, so to speak. Paul has appealed to Rome... And as Festus had already famously said, to Rome he shall go. 
Paul's final defense speech in the book of Acts really highlights the impossible mission the resurrected Lord has sent him to accomplish. But it also shows Paul as an example of a faithful evangelist seeking to carry out his impossible mission, taking advantage of this opportunity to speak the gospel to a group of wealthy and powerful Jews and Gentiles together. In 2 Corinthians 4, Paul describes what happens and how it happens when a spiritually blind sinner is given sight. Look at verses 4 to 6. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In these verses, Paul first describes the situation of every human being on the face of the planet who hasn't begun to trust Jesus. Satan keeps people blinded, preventing them from seeing the light. What light? The glory of Christ revealed in the gospel. In verse 5, he turns to preaching. Preaching what? Preaching Jesus Christ as Lord. Why? It seems that the remedy for the blindness described in verse 4 is preaching Jesus Christ as Lord. How does that work? Verse 6 points to God as the primary mover, the decisive actor. God shines the light in the heart. He overcomes the darkness. If you keep verses 5 and 6 together, you can see that God shines the light through our preaching of the gospel message. That's God's way of saving sinners. Always has been, always will be. The impossible mission of Paul was to open the eyes of the blind. How was he to pursue this mission? By preaching Jesus Christ is Lord by telling people who Jesus really is, what He's like, and what He's done. God is the one who actually turns the lights on. John Piper says, The Holy Spirit never opens the eyes of the heart until there is gospel truth in the mind to believe. That's our job. We put the truth of Christ into a person's mind with the testimony, with preaching. We pray for the miracle of spiritual sight for the blind. And God, in His time and in His ways, says, let there be light. Pray and preach. And don't let the word preach intimidate you or lead you to think that we're only talking about what pastors or professional missionaries do. Simply talk about Jesus all the time with everyone. We've gotten too comfortable, I think, using vaguely religious language. We say things like, bless you. Why not say, may Jesus bless you today? Or instead of, I got saved, why not say, Jesus saved me? Or instead of, I'll pray for you, why not say, I'll ask Jesus to help you? We need to get used to speaking of Jesus specifically. Jesus specifically, in our normal conversations. Let's get to the point where we're as comfortable referring to Jesus by name as we are 
referring to our spouses or our kids by name in our conversations. Would you pray with me toward that end? Father, the mission is impossible from our vantage point. To open blind eyes, that's a miracle. That's what you do. That's what Jesus did while he was on earth. He opened the eyes of the blind, and he's doing it still today. Would you help us to know our role in all of this? Simply to speak the message and to trust that you will take those words and accomplish the miracle of opening blind eyes through it. Your work and your mission is global. It is not limited to one people group or one ethnicity. It is not to the Jew only. It is to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. And it has gone out to all corners of the globe. And we pray that it would indeed continue going out until the day of our Savior's return. Complete the mission, we pray. Use us in whatever ways you see fit. We are your servants. We are your vessels. Use us, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen.